Welcome to the Saturate Podcast. My name is Brad Watson. Today we have a really great episode where we're going to dive into church history with Winfield Bevins. He's a fellow at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. He's been a church planter, pastor, writer, super thoughtful person. Uh, And he's going to talk to us about the Wesleyan revival that started with uh, Jonathan Wesley and continued for a good hundred years of just incredible movement. We're going to talk about what was it about that that made it work? What did he see as he has dove into that history? And he's actually produced a book called The Marks of a Movement that helps us understand the dynamics at play when God has a movement like that. It's a really great conversation. Can't wait to share it. On the show notes has all the resources that we've been talking about. Go to marksofamovement.com to find out more about what Winfield has been doing. The other thing, just want to give a uh, shout out to past episodes of the podcast. If you missed our conversation about what God's doing in Latin America, please take a listen. Uh, That's episode 91. It's really awesome. So check that out. Also, we've continued to push this Ephesians Bible study because it's bearing a lot of fruit. It's been really exciting to see how already as it's being used in churches, it's been an encouragement. And in missional communities, it's been an encouragement too. If you have read that, give us a review on Amazon so other people can find it. Like and subscribe as always. Uh, All that really good stuff. Uh, We're really thankful as the Saturate team to be serving you guys. Uh, And without anything else to say, let's dive into today's episode. This is the Saturate Podcast. Saturate is committed to seeing a gospel movement happen in North America and beyond, in which every man, woman, and child have a daily encounter with Jesus in word and deed. This podcast is an ongoing conversation with disciples and leaders growing in the gospel and growing in living the implications of the gospel in community and on mission. Hi, welcome to the podcast, Winfield Bevins. Uh, super excited to have you on to talk about the marks of a movement and all sorts of fun things about what we can learn from the Wesleyan movement and a disciple-making life here today in our current season, current cultural moment. Before we jump into that, maybe you could share with our, our listeners just a little bit about who you are and, and what you do in your daily life. Yeah, Brad, thanks so much. Yeah, my name's Winfield Bevins. You know, I've been engaged in the work of church planning and disciple making for, gosh, I don't know, the last 15, 20 years. Um, My current kind of context is I work as director of church planning at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. It's a global initiative. And so we're doing church planner training you know, a lot of different global contexts. You know, we've got different degrees here, but we're doing kind of Institute models in like Africa, India, Latin America, we're in Australia as well. And so it's a really cool place to be working at the moment in the area of kind of just being innovative and theological education for church planners. Married, I've got three daughters. Um, That's a whole separate podcast right there. (laughs) Family (laughs) discipleship. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that sounds so exciting that that work that you're doing with Asbury and also, I mean, the three daughters, that sounds exciting as well. Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on today is uh, I actually, I got an email a couple months ago 
from uh, the editor of this podcast who was raised Methodist and is now part of a Soma church in Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. He obviously listens to this podcast every week. <laughs> uh, and he wrote me this exciting email of, hey, have you heard of this guy? He's basically talking about how what Soma is doing now, the Wesleyans, my people, mm-hmm. were doing 300 years ago with <laughs> you know 12 person small groups. Yep small intimate confession groups, a reliance on prayer, God's word, the Holy Spirit, all of that. And it like changed England and the United States. He's like, this is so great. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and then as I saw your your book being promoted, Marks of a Movement, I was like, oh, we got to have this guy on for sure. Well, super excited to be here with you. Uh, unfortunately, I think the the Wesleyan movement can feel very foreign we might not even be sure about what that even is. And so maybe that could be a good starting point uh, is, is what's the history behind this that, that you dive into in the book? Yeah, the Wesleys were, they were evangelical Anglicans uh, in 18th century. And really, your three great leaders of the evangelical Great Awakening revival were George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and John Wesley. Wesley and Whitfield were really good friends and Whitfield had kind of, you know, swept Wesley up into the kind of the, the preaching, you know, to the masses. But the genius of the Wesleyan revival was Wesley saw, you know, people were falling away, people that were experiencing conversion in these, you know, kind of large settings. Wesley saw the need for deep discipleship and had pressed into early church studies when he was at Oxford and began to experiment with kind of radical discipleship communities. And mm. so essentially early Methodism. And the reason I, I like using the term Wesleyan revival, because I, I like to make a distinction between modern Methodism and early Methodism. So in yeah. some ways, just the Wesleyan revival kind of helps kind of make that distinction. And, and like you said, is it was a disciple-making movement that raised up lay people to do the work of ministry. It was a move of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, I tell people movements can't be manufactured. Mm-hmm. There's this supernatural dimension to bona fide movements. And so there was this element that it was, it was lay-led. Um, he, he gathered people in kind of disciple-making systems. And we might kind of unpack that a little bit more here in a few minutes. But it really changed. Um, it helped put these new converts in these discipleship groups so they, they could grow. And it created kind of a pipeline for leadership. And that early Methodist movement raised up thousands of leaders. And within one generation, it became the fastest growing movement in the United States. Mm-hmm. Just phenomenal. I think there's just really so much wisdom that the church or the West can regain by looking at kind of the early Wesleyan revival in some of those areas. Yeah. And- as you mentioned, the movement part of it, I think, really is quite a phenomenon. Some of the the numbers that you have is, yeah, between 1850 and 1905, they average planting more than 700 churches a year. Mm-hmm. And what started out as just a handful of people, it began to multiply at that rate. That's like astonishing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's that's the stuff church growth dreams are made of. I mean, this stuff really happened. And, you know, if you drive through the South, you see a little tiny Methodist church on every street corner. Well, those were the results of a church, a bona fide church planning movement in the West. Yeah. And uh, I mean, as you said, too, there's, they implemented 
these structures or, or strategies? Like, what are those that that you kind of see as as you look into this that that we could even learn from today? Yeah, I think so much of evangelicalism, and you know, again, the work you're doing, you know, saturate with the emphasis on disciple making, you know, missional communities, and you know, so much of evangelicalism has just focused on conversion growth or, you know, just getting people saved, but there's no follow-up on discipleship mm. and disciple-making. In many ways, I think the decline of the church in the West is directly correlated to the lack of emphasis on discipleship. Uh, you know, I think that was part of the genius was these people were coming to faith and then they were put in small group structures that allowed them to grow at different stages of, of their walk. I look at different marks, but in discipleship in specific, there were three kind of size dynamics. There were the societies, which would be the equivalent to a church, if you will, or you know, size 50 to 70, kind of a larger group of people. Then you had the class meeting, which is what Methodism was really known for. And these were essentially the size of what most of us would just call a small group of say 15, 20 people. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is for to be a Methodist wasn't to attend church on Sunday. You actually had to be a member of a class meeting. And mm-hmm. so they had class meeting tickets <laughs> and <laughs> your leader had to sign that quarterly. And if you stopped attending or if you got out of line, guess what? Your ticket wasn't, renewed and actually have sitting kind of in front of me a class meeting ticket from the 1800s that is signed by the class meeting leader. And a friend of mine gave this to me, 1843. And Tom Rayner, you know, wrote a book on, you know, the importance of membership. They had a high bar. And so so then you had the class meetings, but here's what's interesting. And this is, this is an area that I've been really recovering is the they called it the band meeting. And this wasn't like playing in a music band. You know, they banded together in these small groups of three to five. And that was Wesley's favorite size dynamic mm. because a, a group of three to five, there was no curriculum other than meeting each week and saying, how is it with your soul? And mm. people confess their sins. You know, I've heard, you know, different terms, people kind of reviving these, but essentially Wesley invented this. But right. that little intimate group was where leaders were born and raised up as people dealt with their sin and they battled with their struggles. That was the glue of the movement or, or, or the size dynamics. And you, you have an example at the, at, on your book's website, which we'll share in the show notes. But you have an example of the, these questions that they would ask in the band meeting. And the last one is, how might the Holy Spirit be speaking and moving in your life? Yeah, that, that's such a powerful question mm. in light of it not just being a confession group or a group of yeah. a, an accountability group or whatnot, but this is a, there's a not just a movement towards abstaining from sin, but walking in the spirit in your yes. whole life. It's fascinating. Yeah, I'm a part of a band um, that meets each week and, you know, we kind of work through those questions and it's really powerful. You know, some weeks mm. are painful, <laughs> you know, mm. and I always come away just encouraged and lifted up and it helps you to, you know, a lot of times we just go through the motions too, you know, and 
in those little intimate spaces, asking questions with other people who are taking notes. They're really prayerfully engaged in kind of where you're at in your walk. How might the spirit be moving in your life? It really causes you to reflect deeply on God's work and in your life, your family, your vocation, whatever you're called to do. Yeah, that's one of the questions I have is, well, one is what are the marks of a movement? <laughs> but then, mm-hmm. but then along the same lines is, what do we learn about how did the movement stop? I guess what was it that made, yeah, yeah, where where it lost its its steam? I guess. Yeah. So that's. Two questions. So the first okay. one, what are the marks? I'll, I'll do that real quickly. And, yeah. then, um, and then we could take a few minutes on kind of what are, what were the contributing factors to the decline? So yeah, <laughs> you have movements are essentially, you know, they're essentially sociological, like Christianity at its heart is a movement or was a movement and is a movement in many parts of the global South where Christianity is growing. And I think this is what the Wesley's really tapped into. So kind of the first mark I have in there is what I call changed lives. Like Mm. people are swept up in movements and their lives are changed. And as they experience Christ, this could be for some people, maybe this is their first conversion. Other people, they have a fresh encounter with God, a fresh sense of calling. And I think you see this with you know, Luther, you know, when he encountered God in the scriptures, you have Augustine who hears this voice, take up and read the scriptures. You know, Wesley's heart was strangely warmed at Aldersgate. Mm-hmm. So people's lives are changed as, as they encounter God. What flows out of that is kind of a contagious faith sharing. And what's mm-hmm. interesting is I, I quote in there Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point actually looks, you know, it's a secular book, but he looks at Methodism Mm. as this example of contagious faith sharing. (laughs) You know, it's interesting, kind of, here's this secular book. There's a whole chapter on, as I was really doing research around this, was the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Like, there was this supernatural, we can't manufacture a movement. There's this supernatural dimension that as you look at what's happening through the rapid spread of global Christianity today, like these are spirit filled movements and we in the West need to, to really relearn what it means to be open to the person and work of the Holy spirit. I think there's a knee jerk reaction. We don't want to be crazy charismatics or whatever, but we need the Holy spirit. And I think this is what we see in Methodism. It had a real kind of gracious kind of work of the Holy spirit that was happening. And again, what the Wesleys did was they created a discipleship structure, which is what we shared about. So that was the other mark is these people that encounter, here they're encountering God, they're sharing their faith. Well, Wesley knew that wasn't enough. So they developed these disciple-making systems that essentially created this holistic ecosystem. So think in terms of like whether you're a church leader or a movement leader or developing kind of ecosystems where people can grow in their faith at different levels. And then the thing that capped it off is Wesley used the term means of grace. These were essentially spiritual disciplines like prayer, fasting, sharing and band meeting, fellowship, corporate worship, communion. Um, These things help form us. You know, the next chapter looks at what I call apostolic leadership. This is kind of you know, raising up and sending people at every level to do the work of ministry, empowering the body of Christ. So there's kind of an empowering of others. And that was really the genius was it wasn't just professional ordained clergy. Everyone 
had a role to play in the Methodist movement of, mm. of the early 18th, 19th century. And I think that was part of the rapid spread was he created systems to empower and mobilize people at every level. Yeah. And that kind of gave way to the next point is what I call organic multiplication. You know, healthy systems multiply. Uh, healthy disciples make disciples and multiply disciples. Healthy disciple making systems multiply those systems. You know, healthy groups will right. multiply. Healthy churches multiply. So there's this kind of organic intentional multiplication that's happening. So right. those are kind of the marks. Yeah. As I think through these marks, it almost feels like all of those elements seem to be at play in different streams of current American Christianity. Like there, there is an organic movement all on its own. There's mm -hmm. super systematized movements, which honestly, sometimes Soma falls into of like here and saturate, like here, here's the systems for missional communities. And we call them DNA groups and, and personal like formation. And then others are all on, Holy Spirit or just like, oh, people come to these events, they have changed lives. That's the end of it. I think what's yeah. fascinating is about this this cocktail, all of these marks, these six essential things happening in the same in the same space, I guess. Yeah, I think those they they kind of flow together. The other interesting thing with the method, you know, because Wesley was an Anglican, and I talk about this in several places in the book. He actually pressed into tradition and he had this unique synergy balance of mm -hmm. innovation and tradition that I think, mm -hmm. again, there was, it wasn't just organic, there was structure and it wasn't so structured that it wasn't open to kind of, mm -hmm. you know, the ability to be organic. One of the people that I quote in the book, who's been a mentor of mine, who's really, I think, one of the world's leading movement thinkers, his name's Howard Snyder. Mm -hmm. He's done a lot of thinking. He's probably in his 70s. He's done a lot of thinking and writing and research in the area of renewal movements. And he says, true renewal in the church always weds new insights, ideas, and methods with the best elements from history. True renewal is always a return at its most basic level to the mm -hmm. image of the church as presented in scripture and lived out throughout varying mosaics down throughout history. And so there is this element of in some ways, renewal movements are rediscovering elements that have been lost. It's moving from being one-dimensional to being multi-dimensional. And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with these different marks is it's not like these are the 10 steps. Rather, this is kind of the multiple dimensions of the Christian faith that contribute toward healthy organisms, you know, they're mm. embodied. And when those come together, it creates a movemental dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, which if you see renewal as as a, at its basic a return, I think that definitely changes uh, the posture. And maybe this is just me because I'm, you know, mid thirties person, but uh, so I technically a millennial. But we 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 kind of are held hostage to the idea of oh we're we're creating this whole new thing. We're creating this whole new thing. We've never done it this way. We've never been this cool before. Yeah. Which is a totally different posture. It actually carries with it tons of weight and pressure and judgment and all of that. Yeah, I think there's something in reclaiming, you know, the back of the I'm looking at the back of the book right now. It says, reclaim the disciple making mandate of Jesus. And essentially it's what we're talking about. We're saying, how do we get back in order to go forward? The key to making disciples today 
isn't just creating some new kind of gimmick or trick. In many ways, it's right. rediscovering wisdom from the past for the sake of mm -hmm. fresh mission and formation today. Yeah, that's a big part of my hope and even having you come on and, and hopefully listeners will read your book is particularly within our stream or tribe, there's a tendency to think that we're against traditions or, or we haven't even looked back closely enough into the yeah. history and our heritage to know that there's been like incredibly wise, spirit-filled women and men who have actually mm -hmm. been at the exact same place that we are. And there's so much to learn from them. And, and we're trying to recreate a wheel even out of arrogance or, or maybe just we're, we're missing out on some of the breadth of wisdom yeah. that, that God offers us. Sounds like you read this book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you would ask what were, I guess, the second part of the question, what were mm -hmm. kind of some of the contributing factors to the decline of early Methodism? And mm -hmm. again, what's fascinating is it, for a season, outpaced the Baptist, the growth of the Baptist church in the U.S. and became the fastest, largest denomination in the U.S. You know, as you said, you know, those numbers around 1850, you know, for this generation, planning on average 700 churches a year, which is phenomenal. Yeah. There were three main things, and I'll summarize them, but one is the clergy, you know, here it grew so fast and became the largest denomination. Well, all of a sudden, there was this shift toward, hey, we want our clergy to become educated, like yeah. the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians. So all of a sudden there was this shift toward clergy, you know, being professionally educated in seminary. I got to be careful because I work at a seminary, <laughs> you know. And so what happened was as the clergy became theologically educated, they came under the influence of biblical critical method, theological liberalism. You know, they stopped preaching the fire and they started preaching. They stopped preaching, you know, and hmm. – so there, there was a correlation to the rise of clergy education and the demise of or the decline of the church. The second was they moved from being storefronts, if you will, or you know, being church plants to wanting buildings. Hmm. So all of a sudden, it became the end thing to be a Methodist. And so politicians, hmm. the head of the Methodist church became really close with Abraham Lincoln. This was kind of around that time period. And this particular bishop, who was kind of the you know the head leader of the Methodist Church in the U.S., really drove for clergy to be educated in big seminaries and a building campaign. And so right. they started building fancy buildings. So if you look at these old Methodist churches, they got the stained glass, you know, they got the fancy pipe organs, and these are churches from the early 1900s. And there was this quick move to all of a sudden, you know, they were a church of the people and the masses to kind of focusing their energy on the upper class and building buildings that a lot of them look like Episcopal church buildings. And, you know, it's kind of the late Victorian era, you know, early Gothic kind of design. And so they started building buildings. Now, here's the third one. And this as I was writing this, it really kind of broke my heart is they did away with the class meeting. Mm. And this was really profound. If you think about it, 
there was a famous Methodist circuit rider preacher named Peter Cartwright who was, you know, during the great camp meetings, he was he was one of the leaders of the Methodist church during its peak. All right. And so as he got older, he saw the rapid decline. And in his journals, and I quote him in the end, because I, I, do, I do a whole section on movements can be messy. I look at actually what's some of the dark side of movements. Right. What are some of the, you know, in no way was the early Westland revival perfect. So, right. <laughs> you know, this isn't a book about hagiography. So I, I touch on that at the end. But Cartwright basically said, what happened to our ministers? You know, they became educated. And then he says, and then what happened to the beloved class meeting? He said, you know, our church has is, is given its soul away. Mm. And I looked as I was reading that, I had that class meeting ticket right in front of me. Mm. And when they gave away the class meeting, when they gave that up and moved what it meant to be a member of the church from being a class meeting member to being, you know, do you attend church on Sunday? They, moved, they went from being disciples to being church attenders. There was this, mm. They basically said, hey, we're willing to compromise discipleship you know, on the altar of church growth. Mm. And that was the final nail in the coffin that I think contributed to the demise and the mess, quite mm-hmm. honestly, that the current Methodist church is in today. Wow. And so you say they kind of sacrificed that for the sake of church growth. Were they feeling like the class meeting was just too much to ask for people? You know, let's just have them come and and sit in the pews. Yeah. Or give to the building campaign. All that stuff that was happening. And it was like, how do we accommodate to the masses? How do we make Christianity palatable? How do we, you know, and you see this with the fastest declining denominations in the United States. And again, I'm not a quick finger pointer and I, I want to see God move everywhere and all throughout Christendom. Yeah. But the fastest declining denominations in the United States are the ones that have compromised the message, essentially have given way to kind of a progressive agenda and theology. And there's no semblance of what Christianity is, authentic, Mm -hmm. real Christianity. Whereas the contrast is when you look at the rise of global Christianity, it's gospel centered. Mm-hmm. As soon as you lose the gospel and the centrality of Christ, and you know, these are core essentials. And mm. anyway, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, oh, but oh, it's so good. Well, I think that is that that is the end becomes something that that we often talk about is you know one of the reasons we're not seeing movement of disciples being made is we get distracted and then we get discouraged and then we get disillusioned and that's, mm-hmm. it sounds like that's these things at play you know you get distracted by oh let's let's gain political power yep. let's do all of that you know we get discouraged like well things aren't happening like how we always wanted them to happen let's let's try to gain you know the reins ourselves and then then the last thing to always drop is the disillusion like jesus really doesn't transform there is no encounter. Uh, it wasn't real. Or it was, but we have to conjure it up somehow. Yeah. And it just seems like that's similarly like what's at play. And it also sounds like it just mirrors so much of just American Christianity across denominations. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. 
last question, what, what is your hope or, or how can people engage with this book even just beyond the academic understanding? Yeah, I think my real passion for the book is I want to get this in the hands of church leaders, church members, disciple makers, people that want to see a movement in our day. And part of my studies and work at Asbury is in the area of global Christianity. I'm, I mean, I literally just, um, as we started, just finished up a meeting with president of a school, spent two hours with him uh, from Uganda, you mm. know, talking about training leaders throughout Uganda. And I think there's wisdom we can learn from um, what God's doing globally contextually, the question is, what would a movement look like in North America? Mm. What would it even look like? What would a movement look like in our day? And I think the closest thing that we could even kind of learn from is this early Wesleyan revival. There was there were a lot of similarities culturally and contextually that I think we can, again, it's not about reliving the good old days or mm. kind of doing this, doing these 10 things, and then we'll see a movement. But how can we learn some of these organic lessons that can be adapted and contextualized for the 21st century context? So that's really the heart behind the book. Um, each chapter, while it the book is primarily about the early Wesleyan revival, don't think pushing as a distinct, this book's for Baptists, Pentecostals, Reformed, like this is... Yeah. You know, and the endorsements are from a wide range of endorsers, you know. And so, really, I think that there's wisdom here for the church in the West. And also, in each chapter, there's a profile of other movements. So, I engage with mm. kind of the Moravian revival, the Celtic missionary movement. Mm. I even look at the Pentecostal movement. I look at global church planning movement. So, I try to, like, draw wisdom from multiple wells you know, to help people think through and, and just inspire fresh movement for today. The website, I've, I've tried to really provide a lot of free resources. There's, mm -hmm. there's a free band meeting guide. There's there's a, a movement assessment tool that churches can kind of use to kind of just think through kind of where they're at mm -hmm. and how they can take steps to kind of be more of a, a movement in their local context. You know, there's some free videos that kind of go along with the book. And so I really... My dream for this is if this could be a spark, mm. you know, to help churches and Christians begin to see a movement in their local context. I, I think this is what we need in our day is a disciple making movement. Mm. I love it. And uh, those resources are really good. I've downloaded them all. They're excellent. Uh, so definitely encourage people to do that and, uh, and to get this book. And, and really wrestle and process with it. If you're all on board and everything that's being shared is like, yeah, that's exactly what we need. I want to be part of that movement. Then there's so much wisdom to be learned from this. If you're learning from those who have gone before us. And then if you're also just like, what would a movement look like? And having that dream. Yeah, I think this is also just a really helpful conversation. So yeah, thank you so much for putting the time and the research and the passion into doing it. And yeah, I just pray that it really is that kind of spark. Hey Amen. Thanks. Thanks so much, Brad. If uh, people want to find out about the book, marksofamovement.com, I'm easy to engage with. Uh, you know, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, you know, my personal site. So, I, you know, I encourage readers or people who, you know, you've got questions. Feel free to reach out to me. I'd love yeah. to hear from you. Yeah, definitely. And, and thanks for joining us today. And we'll, we'll chat again soon. Thanks so much for having me. 
Today's podcast was edited by Ben Fort, and our theme music is written and performed by the band Mopac. Saturate's hope is to see one missional community for every 1,000 people in every city as we see the glory of God fill every person, every place, and every church. We participate in this vision by curating resources, training, coaching, consulting, and many more ways. Find out more at saturatetheworld.com.